What we're really trying to do in any difficult conversation is give the person a sense of control. I think a lot of what is needed for these to be healing conversations is we have to earn, we have to earn this person's trust. We can't just take it for granted because we wear a coat or what have you. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I've Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host today. Today, I am very blessed because not only do I have a great guest that you're going to learn from, Karen is also a friend of mine, and she's someone that I look up to and someone that I know the audience will really learn from today. Dr. Karen Knops is a palliative care physician and creator of programs designed to improve the experience of patients with serious illness. She received her medical degree from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and is board certified in internal medicine. Upon completion of her fellowship training in palliative care medicine at Stanford University, she made her way to New Jersey where she went to create and lead the Division of Palliative and Supportive Care for a 600-bed teaching hospital, which was part of the larger Atlantic Health System, and that's where I first met her. During her time leading the Division of Palliative Care at Marstown Medical Center of Atlantic Health Systems, Dr. Knops created on-site training programs for physicians from multiple specialties as well as nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, and other healthcare professionals. She served as hospice medical director for Atlantic Hospice and as a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Dr. Knops has been recognized as a top doctor in palliative care medicine in both New Jersey and in Seattle, where she now lives. Dr. Knops' work is deeply influenced by her own early experiences as a patient, her models for communication and understanding patient perspectives have been published and shared nationally and internationally. 
and she is a passionate advocate for improving patient and clinician experience and compassion in healthcare. Her current role is medical director of palliative care services at Overlake Medical Center for clinics in Bellevue, Washington, where she teaches clinician communication techniques. Well, Karen, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's great to uh, be talking with you. I'm really very happy that you're here today. As I said in the introduction, you're a good friend, someone that I look up to, and someone that I know that everyone's going to learn from. As you know, and you and I discussed, I'm really, really very blessed in that in the first 48 hours, we just recently launched on August 4th, and in the first 48 hours of our podcast, we hit the Apple Top 200 charts and made it as low as number seven in wow. the medicine subcategory. So really very pleased. And I'd like to take credit for that, but actually I can't. It's because we've had phenomenal guests like you, and I've been very, very blessed that people are saying yes and and helping me fulfill my promise to the audience, which is that after each and every single podcast, that they will feel inspired and that they will learn something about communication. So I have no doubt that you're going to help me with that today. Well, I sure hope so. I I love your promise so much. And I really, I just want to acknowledge you, first of all, for talking about something that I think more than ever, we as a society should should be thinking about, which is communication and how do you really connect with someone with a different perspective or have a difficult conversation. So I just, I deeply applaud you for even getting this going and I'm so glad it's been successful. Well, thank you. You know, in medical school, as you know, in medical school, it's all about algorithms and learning and learning about diseases and it's very competitive. And we had a guest, Dr. Dyke Drummond on a few weeks ago, who talked about physician burnout and why that occurs. And I think the biggest problem we have in medicine is that we haven't spent enough time speaking about communication and speaking about that connection, or my favorite word is relationship with the patients that we have. To just start out, I had mentioned in your introduction that you were a patient when you were very young, and that really kind of molded you or got you interested in medicine I want to hear more about that. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I had a seizure disorder when I was young and I spent a lot of time in clinics and a lot of time in the hospital and a lot of time in the doctor's office. And I think that got me interested in medicine and influenced who I am right now. So do you mind just sharing your personal story of when you were a child and you had deep medical issues? Sure. And I think that is something you and I, when we met each other, we had as a common experience that idea that medicine is not perfect. I think you, when you've been a patient, you fully understand that. And there's a lot that we can do and should be working on, especially around communication. My own experience as a patient started kind of when I was 12. I have pretty significant scoliosis, so curvature of the spine. And so starting when I was 12, all the way through 22, about a 10-year period, I was going to orthopedic surgeons pretty regularly and had a whole process of getting frequent x-rays, ultimately having to wear a brace for a couple of years during high school, and then make pretty difficult decisions around whether to have surgery or not, because my curvature of the spine continued to progress. And so I think for me, it was kind of an interesting experience to be 13, 14 years old and talking to orthopedic surgeon, a gentleman I happened to see was probably in his early 60s. And I just often felt intimidated. 
And I'm, I'm fortunate. My mother is a science teacher. So I felt like I, I came in with a lot of advantages, a lot of people don't have. And I still felt completely intimidated in those interactions. I was just sort of struck by how often what I was concerned about wasn't reflected in the conversations that I was having when I was seeing a surgeon. So that's, I would say, something that really got me thinking about this at a young age, got me interested in medicine. My father had also had cancer. So I'd spent a lot of time around hospitals and just was intrigued by that. But it was really the interactions, the medical decisions, that part of it was what drew me into medicine. And you had said that you felt that everyone, you had told me previously, they just felt that everybody was taken care of the same way as if they were just some kind of same exact patient. As people say, sometimes physicians think of us as a a disease and not a person. They literally, where I was being treated, they literally had, they called it Scully Day so that they wouldn't have to change the plate on the x-ray. There's a longer plate that they use. And so there's literally like this army of all teenage girls kind of (laughs) coming in, you know, 12, 13 years old. And this is this sort of long day and long process where you get your x-ray, then you sit, you wait for the x-ray, you see the surgeon. And yeah, you very much are a number. Tell us more about that. Your orthopedic surgeon may not have been the the most compassionate person in the world and didn't seem to... Yeah, and he he may have been, uh, for example, but the difference in perspective is just so vast sometimes, right? You can be a very compassionate person, and yet I think if you haven't been a teenage girl, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like if you haven't had that actual experience, it's easy to miss things or it's easy to have patients feel like a number. And I don't think any of us go to work intending to make people feel that way. And yet that's what the healthcare system does. When I give lectures and I do my workshops on patient experience or breaking bad news, I do 1000% believe that everyone is compassionate. There's empathy in all of us. And also, I believe that almost every physician goes into medicine for the right reason. Right. Maybe not 100%. There are exceptions, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are exceptions. But yeah. what happens along the way is that we sometimes don't remember to bring that compassion out or don't know how to do it, or maybe it got buried in there. I think you said something about your orthopedic surgeon said, it's not going to be painful, right? Yeah. It, that, <laughs> so that's what's sort of interesting is, is I really feel like I could almost, even as a really young person, since he was trying to be compassionate, he kept repeating when he told me I would need a brace, you know, there won't be any pain. There won't be any pain. You just you wear a brace, but there won't be any pain. And then just me walking out, not having any concept of what that was really going to mean. But my entire life, as you might imagine changed and in ways that I had zero comprehension of. I went to needing to shop in the men's section, for example, because I couldn't find clothing to fit around my brace. Here I was, you know, 15 years old and trying to find something I could wear was a challenge. I couldn't sleep in class anymore. I had only one sport I was good at, which was swimming, but I had been a butterflyer and I lost all of my core body strength over a period of a couple months and had no idea that was going to happen. It was just that swim season came and suddenly I was terrible. Nobody talked about core strength back then, by the way. This was quite a while ago. <laughs> now it seems obvious, but it was a shock to me to get in the pool and suddenly I am not a competitive swimmer anymore. I can't keep up. And I get 
to be out of my brace for one hour a day and, you know, to kind of have it be that I was experiencing these various losses and needing to find a new story for my life was where the hard work was. And that's painful for a young girl to all of a sudden have her whole life changed. And I always say breaking bad news or giving tragic news is all relative. So it may not be a big deal that you're wearing this brace, but to a young girl has to wear the brace and shop in the men's department. It is very painful, right? It's emotional pain. And I think we forget about that in medicine. And I, I have a feeling that's what kind of shaped you to the, at least contributed to who you are now. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it absolutely shaped who I became as a clinician. When you wear something like that, that is physically visible, you understand how quickly I came from just being quote unquote normal to people really not knowing how to interact with me, people being afraid of me or not sure, you know, did I have cerebral palsy? Might I also have some cognitive issues? And there was this whole layer of communication, you could say, going on when people would just see me working at McDonald's and I had not had to deal with that before. A lot of people who live with some type of disability will comment on being invisible. And my experience is nothing near what a lot of people live with throughout their lives. But it was enough that I said, you know what, this is this is very important and I don't want to waste this experience in some way because I learned a little bit. And if you know, if you can kind of use that to help others, I think that's what all of us are looking for as part of healing. Yeah, as, as I uh, mentioned, I had epilepsy or seizure disorder when I was younger. Every month, my parents would drive me to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital across the bridge from New Jersey. And we'd go through the over the George Washington Bridge, go into a gray elevator. If you ask me, what do I remember? I don't remember the name of the doctor. I don't remember what medications I was on. I remember, and I talk about this in my book, I just remember the word gray. Everything was gray. The hallway of Columbia Presbyterian was gray. The chairs were gray. I sat in the waiting room for two hours just to wait for the doctor who barely introduced himself to me. And granted, when I started, I was six. But by the time I got done, I was 14. So I had grown up. And he'd just take the little reflex hammer, hit me on the knee, look in my eyes and give me a prescription and say, I'll see you next month. And so my entire memory of medicine was gray. And maybe that's why I'm so dedicated to trying to make my patient's life a little bit less gray. Yeah. So let's talk about palliative care medicine. And just for the audience, you and I met, I think it was back in 2011 when we were both at Atlantic Health. And I was starting the Breaking Bad News program. For those people who who don't know what the Breaking Bad News program is, it's something that I took 10 years to develop. We take physicians and other healthcare providers, both senior and junior, and we bring them through videotaped improvisational role-playing with professional actors, and they have to give tragic news. And we videotape those interactions, and then we bring the participant into another room, and we watch their video with them. And when I started the program, I knew immediately that I needed help from palliative care people, and that's how you and I met. We hit it off right away. And what I remember, Karen, is the first resident, I think we were doing pediatric residents at that time, the first resident that went through the videotaping, we sat down with him, you started to speak. And I thought the two words I remember is golden tongue. <laughs> and I was with Elizabeth Christ, who is one of our lay people instructors, Cheryl Vassallo, who also has a palliative care person, has a golden tongue. And there were a couple other people, Marianne Lofermento. And you spoke 
And I went, God, that's good. I got to use that. That was so nice. What great advice that was. I love the way she put that. And I stole a lot of stuff from you. I don't mind saying, but that's what we do in medicine when we hear something. And I tell the residents and the senior doctors steal stuff from me too. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you did the palliative care fellowship, but was there somebody in your mentorship? Was there somebody that either made you go into palliative care or when you got to palliative care that you just melted when they spoke to a patient and said, I got to write that down. I got to remember that. Well, it's interesting. I actually would say the person I learned the most from that kind of shaped who I wanted to be when I had the opportunity to work in clinical medicine was actually the orthotist that took care of me when I was a patient. As I said, that it was just such a contrast to what I experienced from the physician that I thought if I could, his name was Chuck, and I really wish I knew his last name. God, if Chuck, if you're out there in Sacramento still, (laughs) huge shout out. But what struck me was he talked to me like I was a person. And it's such a small thing. It seems so obvious, but that was the contrast. And that that's never left me, that when I went through medical training, you learn all the jargon. It's like learning a second language. And there are constraints that you have, time and all these things, but it doesn't take more time to speak to someone like they're a person. And that's never left me. As far as palliative medicine goes, when I was in training, I actually had not met a palliative care physician during that time. It was not that long ago, almost 20 years ago now, but I had very little exposure, as is true in most medical training. Even now, there's pretty little exposure to hospice or even palliative care clinicians. And so what happened was I just had this interest in the conversations themselves, in how can we better support patients who are really grappling with big, big stuff? It bothered me that I couldn't do it well. And even I would say, as I looked around at my attending physicians, mentors, they could be excellent in other parts of care, but even they seemed to struggle and couldn't teach me easily. And so at the time I graduated from my residency, there were about seven accredited palliative care fellowships in the country at that time. But I had been so inspired by just two days I'd spent with a hospice nurse that I thought, you know what, I just want to, let me just do this gear. Two days with a hospice nurse and that, well, she must've been an amazing person. Well, and it was the patients again, like bringing it Mm -hmm. back, like to be able to go to people's homes as opposed to what I spent hundreds of hours seeing in the ICU, you know, people dying in the ICU or people coming into the emergency room. And I just felt such a sharp contrast between what I saw in the hospice experience versus quote unquote medicine that as it had been presented as the quote unquote normal part of medicine. So that's what gave me the strength to kind of do the jump. Like, let me just do this training. I will never regret getting better at these conversations that I knew for sure. And I didn't feel it was okay. The skills I had when I finished my basic training, I did not feel I was where I wanted to be. So the rest is kind of, I took a a kind of a little side adventure. I did not expect to go full-time into hospice and palliative medicine, but that's what has allowed me to continue doing what I'm passionate about. So I'm super grateful for that. And I'm so glad you stayed in it because you're so good at it. And as I said, I, you know, I respect all my palliative care people that I've worked with. They're amazing people. I use them all the time. 
I try to get them involved early as opposed to some other physicians who call you in the last second. Yeah. But just like anything else, I would, and I don't want to, good thing it's not video because I might make you blush, but I'll say that, you know, you and Cheryl Vassallo are really among the best of the best. I, I respect you so much. And that's why I wanted you on this program. And Cheryl, if you're out there, you're next. So you'll be on our program too soon. <laughs> Let's talk about what I consider the most difficult conversation of all. The conversation when you have to sit in a room, speak to a family about mom or dad or child or family member and talk about end-of-life discussions and decisions that people make. And it's something that physicians should be better at. It's something that most physicians run away from. And it's not because they don't care. It's because they haven't been trained. And thank God we have palliative care people. But I always get a little annoyed when we rely too much on the palliative care people because you, right. you should be a team member with us and we should do it together. After all, the patient has a relationship with me and I'm bringing you in. But you've already inspired us. So let's go to the second promise. And that is, what is your approach when you go into a room to have that conversation with the family about end of life? And just a few tips that you can give that clinician out there that has to do it when Karen Knops is not there. Yeah, well, I think you make a good point that we want more people to feel skilled in these types of conversations, not just for patients, but I think Clinicians will like who they become when they try to become better at this. You will like what that process does for you. It's really worthwhile. I think one of the biggest concerns I run into with when I talk about this is a lot of times we're feeling like it's hard to have end of life conversations because we're not always sure. We're not always, we're not God. You know, we don't know. A thing I say a lot is you don't have to be right. You just have to have a plan. And that's what we're trying to impart is if there's uncertainty, how are we going to deal with that uncertainty? It's okay to name the things, you know, uncertainty, there's some complexity to the situation. But I think often, especially for doctors, they feel so obsessed with needing to be right that they use that as a barrier to the conversation or feel it as a major barrier. So I, I think, you know, one of the basic things is if we are trying to give prognosis, understand you should give a range of what might happen. And then also give a sense, again, if it's so uncertain that something could change tomorrow, well, that's good information. A lot of people would want to understand that so that they can plan, right? So it's, I think we put too much on knowing exact prognosis as, as being a prerequisite. It's not mandatory. So that's a big one. I think as far as having the conversations themselves, this is where I, I lean on what I was trained in fellowship. My mentors were Vijay Periakoil and Gary Shin, who had uh, trained at Harvard. Vijay, I think, was had been at Stanford for as long as I could remember. I don't think she had done formal palliative care fellowship because she had been in the, the field of geriatrics for so long. But this is where, you know, a lot of what I've learned, I've stolen from other people, to use your <laughs> you know, analogy. It's That's what fellowship okay. is for. Yes. We're very promiscuous around our, you know, <laughs> other people's terminology or, or phrases. So I would say I like to simplify things as much as I can. I also, one of my special kind of things from childhood, I have dyslexia. So I always had to listen to things when everyone else was reading. And I like to try to simplify everything for myself. I'm the best student. I have. Mm -hmm. 
So what I will do is kind of take some of what I've been taught. And I like to say, what we're really trying to do in any difficult conversation is give the person a sense of control. I think a lot of what is needed for these to be healing conversations is we have to earn, we have to earn this person's trust. We can't just take it for granted because we wear a coat or what have you. So the key techniques for really demonstrating trust and compassion are, I use them as uh, the letter P is what I remember. So on the front end of these conversations, it's good to get permission. This comes up as a term in the literature a lot in hospice and palliative medicine is it's okay to ask, hey, can I bring up a topic that's sometimes hard for people to talk about? But I thought I just wanted to see where you're at with this. Is it okay if we talk about what's ahead? Is it okay if are you the kind of person who likes to know a lot of detail about your prognosis? Again, we're not as clinicians required to be all knowing. It's not having the golden tongue, it's having the golden ears. I love that point. Yeah. That's great point. Active listening first before yeah. you speak. Yeah. So get that permission. The next P is kind of related to that to use paraphrasing. So when we ask permission, you know, tell me where you're at with this right now. Really recapping, listen really, really carefully to what is being said to you and then say it back, reflect it back to the person as they're talking. For clinicians, I think it's also important as we paraphrase, you know, so maybe I'm going to say what your journey has been as as you've explained where you've been on your cancer journey. As I say that back in a paraphrasing, I want to include a bit of praise in that. I think by default, a lot of people are feeling a little bit of shame or feeling a little guilt. Maybe I, you know, their friend told them to try juicing and they didn't do that, right? So you never know what people are holding. Usually there are things like that. So to recap and say, boy, what I'm hearing is you've really tried everything you felt was available to you. You've really done your best. You know, this was not easy circumstances and you've really done your best. That's what I'm hearing you say. So using that paraphrase gives them a sense of control over what's been said. They can hear and then process. And that is part of that healing. We're also helping them retell their story in a way. You know, I talked about my own experience of going from thinking I was going to have a certain teenage girl experience and then having something just very different. And so we're trying, I think, in these conversations to help people have a sense that they still have a story. They might feel in between. They might be kind of grabbing at straws, but this will go on and we can still go forward. So that's using the paraphrase. If we're trying to bring up end of life conversations, I like if we're trying to break bad news to use the word preview to describe that. So to say, unfortunately, the news is not what we were hoping for. Okay, so you give them some sense of what's ahead. I use the P's because when I was learned this, you know, gosh, a couple decades ago, that this was a warning shot, and I'm not yeah. not a fan of the war analogies in in having these conversations. So, well, also that comes from the spikes acronym. When I teach it, I say to the the residents instead of just coming out and say I have bad news. To show that you have bad news, it's always better to show and we can, yeah. through our conversation, they'll get it. Yeah. And the warning shot always seems to be, as I say, you don't prepare somebody for bad news by saying I have bad news because that is the bad news. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So one of the most difficult things that we do is palliative care people are involved in is when you have a family that has to make that decision 
do I put grandma on the ventilator? Mm -hmm. She's 90 years old. She has dementia. And one of the things that physicians are responsible for doing is to help them get through this process of whether we're doing something to grandma or we're doing something to help grandma. Mm -hmm. And I have my own views and I think I know yours because we spoke. But one of the questions that we get all the time as physicians is, what would you do? Mm -hmm. And I was trained to say, well, I'm not you, which I think is totally <laughs> wrong. That's not the answer. I think that's a cop out. What I say is, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what I would do if this were my grandmother. And I think that you talked about trust. I think that that forms that instant bond. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's often what people are looking for with that question. It's not just about the decision. It's about, are you willing to put yourself in my shoes? For a minute. I think it's a, a way of requesting that. Also, people can become really overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of information. We see this when we do the training when you and I worked together, that the amount of jargon that just sort of comes flying out, or the pace at which that's the other P that I, I talk about a lot in terms of giving a person a sense of control over that conversation, is we really want to chunk that information, prioritize it, and then pace it. You know, so what's the biggest thing that they need to walk away understanding? Well, it might be that no matter what we do, our grandma's life is extremely limited. We're in her last chapter. Again, we can't say exactly how long is the chapter, but it's really important for them to understand that that is the highest priority piece of information. So I think when we get that question, what would you do? It's often a sign that someone might be overwhelmed by all this gobbledygook we've just said. And it's like, okay, cut to the chase. How do I do this? I think when I get that question, it's often, you know, you validate how hard this is and normalize that it's, it's so hard to be in this situation. And if I were in this situation, I think you can tell them, you can kind of show the process you might use. And then what you're doing is you're honoring that you're saying, I see, you want me to put myself in this situation. I will do that. I think I would look at what my grandmother, what I know about her, or I would try to remember things she had said about what if she were in her last chapter. So you can give people the framework from that. But I think it is a little bit dismissive and can come off wrong if we just say, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't go there. And that's what we're taught, Karen, which is, and you know, so individually, the Brinkham and his program has trained, I think, over 5,000 doctors now individually. And you know, from doing it with me, how many times someone says that? Well, I was told that I shouldn't give my opinion. And I, I just say to them, you know, you bring your car to the mechanic. The mechanic doesn't say, would you like the alternator fixed? Or would you like the generator fixed? Or would you like the battery? You're the expert. And they don't have to do what you would do, but what they're asking you your opinion. And to me, that's a real gift. And really what you're doing by saying, this is what I would do is that you're telling them it's okay, whatever decision you make, Yeah, that you're giving them the freedom that if you decide to not intubate grandma and put her on a ventilator, that it's a loving thing to do. It's not selfish. And sometimes they're just looking for that permission, wouldn't you say? Right. I think not everyone's looking for even the same thing with that question. So a great response is to first say, can you tell me more about 
why you're you're asking me. I, I want to respond to your question, but first it can help me to understand why you're asking. And often if you will see often more than what's said, but you may see in their response that the, what they're feeling is a sense of guilt, that they feel they don't really like the idea of having her on the ventilator, but they, again, what you were saying, feel feel great sense of guilt around that, a fearful that of being judged. And if the doctor says that it's okay, then I can, you know, if my family judge me, I can say this is what the doctor recommended. And so people need really different things, I would say, in response to that. Another concept is you may be able to give a more specific answer if, as you've asked someone to tell their story. So tell me, you know, earlier in the conversation, tell me about your grandma. And you've kind of been able to paraphrase back to them. Oh, it sounds like your grandma was a a woman who really valued her independence, right? So you may name some of the values that they are giving you as they're telling the story. You can reference those values then if they if they bring that question. It's well, what I heard you say was that your grandma really put this her you know kind of role as a grandma first and foremost, and she believes she's going to go to heaven because she you know had this really deep and abiding faith. Do you feel like the ventilator, if it's only going to prolong probably her last moments, is that really in line with what her values are? Is that what she envisioned for her last chapter? Yeah, just to have a range of responses and not duck behind our clinical coats and say, I just can't. And what I would say to the audience out there, both medical and non-medical, that when you have these difficult conversations and you do them correctly i think it's a real gift to the family it's a real gift you feel that connection instantly and as a neonatologist for 20 years and i save preemies lives all the time the thing that touches me the most is and now i got 14 years going now i have a family whose baby died 14 years ago and they still send me christmas cards and i know that you have probably multiple stories of that and you really made a difference, as I say, when the family needs you the most. And that's where our palliative care people really, really help us. And I've learned so much from you. And hopefully the audience will yeah. will take those few tips. It's not something you can learn in a few minutes, but it's it'll definitely, they can walk away with some good communication tips. But just in closing, Breaking Bad News isn't about just end the life. You mentioned before, the bad news for you was wearing the scoliosis <laughs> brace. Yeah. The bad news for me was that I had to take medication and look at gray walls for yeah. three hours a day. Bad news could be telling a basketball player that he can't play because he just tore his ACL. Yeah. So tell me about the techniques that you use for end of life and breaking bad news work for everyday life and everyday medicine, right? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing I've learned kind of going back to that idea of You'll like who you become if you are really devoting time and energy to getting better at, at hard conversations. I think the biggest takeaways I've had in training have been around how to just deal with people's emotions and how to deal with my own emotions. And it's not just around end of life conversations. What was interesting, you and I will talk another time again about a model I've used for communication. And I remember doing this audio conference and this person says, gosh, I get so panicked before I have to talk to administrators. I'm going to use this before <laughs> I go into my next you know, meeting with our chief financial officer because I need to have a framework kind of to lean on. So I think it can reduce anxiety to have a sort of basic framework you can lean on. 
for a difficult conversation. So that's number one. You referenced the spikes model. I think the most helpful thing about that is it was a framework. It was one of the first times people really deliberately said, you know, you can give your mind a bit of a map or a structure to follow in a difficult conversation. The other is being able to respond to difficult emotion and being able to have mindfulness on the front end of these conversations. So to be aware of and anticipate, gosh, what what might I do or how might I feel if someone gets really angry? Like if I know I have trouble dealing with people who are angry. It was good for me to practice in New Jersey all those years because I <laughs> very commonly expressed emotion in New Jersey. <laughs> Whether you're on the freeway or in the exam room, just how do you sit with anger? How do you sort of name that, normalize that, and not just retreat or become defensive? So responding to emotion, I think, is one of the things where if we as a society were better at that, we would be able to have so many more conversations. And by goodness, now it's more important than ever as a society that we communicate well. And I could say this is an all-time low of communicating. So maybe this podcast will help that a little bit. You spoke about a framework, and I just so the audience knows, Karen is going to be with us again for another episode that we're going to be recording shortly. And Karen's going to talk about her ASCEND acronym and program for communication. And so I would not miss that one also because this will really, really help you communicate. And boy, do we need communication. Karen, there's no one better to talk about this topic. You're incredible. I think that you've fulfilled our promise. 10 times fold. You've inspired people with your story. You've inspired people to really understand how important these end-of-life conversations are. You've given us some really great tips. It's a lifelong learning. I'm still learning. You're still learning. I want to thank you so much. If anyone out there wants to get in touch with Karen, her website is anticipationhabit.com, and we'll have links on the show notes for you so you can click on that. And if you want to get in touch with Karen, it's anticipationhabit at gmail.com. And if you like this podcast, if you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead, recommend it to other people, hit the subscribe button, hit the download and leave a review. It's very important to leave a review so that we have a guideline to make this better and better. And if you want to learn more about the Orsini Way, you can go to the orsiniway.com or contact me at Dr. Orsini, Orsini at the orsiniway.com. But Go ahead, hit subscribe. Don't miss the next episode with Karen. I'm telling you, it's going to be awesome. Dr. Ganops is going to talk about her ascend, and you won't want to miss that. So, Karen, thank you so much. And I look forward to our next interview. Yes. Thank you for doing all this. It was been fabulous. All right. All right, Karen. Thank you. All right. Bye. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally save the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.